and welcome to yet another episode of An Unqualified Guide to the Good Life, the show where we try to work out what it means to live well despite having no qualifications to do so. This time, semi-qualified, the qualifications perhaps slightly dubious, but with me as always is Mr. Nicholas Schmale, chilling in Geneva as he so usually does, and our good friend, Mr. Sam Rebel, um, who has uh, the, the dubious honor of being the first American on our show and also has been a teacher for a little while, which is relevant because we're talking about education this episode. My God, what a rambling intro. Someone take this away from me. How are you doing, boys? I'm pretty good. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's an honor. Uh, I've been listening for a while, and so it's cool to see the behind the scenes. Uh, I'd like to apologize for my accent. You know, it's a bit more nasally and... American than your listeners are used to. And in the case where uh, these are uh, friends and peers and family members of yours who are listening, I'd like to apologize for Adam and I's accent. It's haughty and pretentious. <laughs> More gravelly than it deserves to be. Well, yes, indeed. <laughs> Which I'm sure just made for great listening there. Um, see, now that there's three of us, it's going to be difficult because it with Nicola, we can be- maintain the semblance of professionalism, but we're just buds now, and it may just end up being a hang sesh. But, um, we'll yeah, try well, you know, I mean, people who know me know that I'm a professional, um, <laughs> and that I take the, the this practice very seriously. So, you know, you can let yourself go, Adam, but just know that you know, uh, constant vigilance. You know, I learned that from Mad Eye Moody, and I never oh, forgot yeah. it. Oh, so, um, here we are, okay. Brief aside before we get into the episode, um, Mad Eye Moody, right? <laughs> so I know that in the in in the fourth Harry Potter book, he, Harry is seen by Mad Eye Moody when he's wearing the invisibility cloak. But then in the seventh Harry Potter book, it becomes revealed that that it is the cloak of true invisibility that lets you hide from death it, himself. But apparently, Mad Eye Moody can still see through it. What are you? What are we doing here? It's a, a plot hole that's always bothered me maybe he's just god he's not he's above death mad moody is the creator and, well maybe and the... of the harry potter series maybe but the type when he was seen it wasn't even mad moody yeah. Barty crouch jr having yeah. some polyjuice potions so. but maybe polyjuice potioning your way into god is is a is a step to god itself yes one incredible aspect of that story <laughs> <laughs> yes indeed um anyway as i said we are talking about education in this episode and um that's why that's why we've invited sam on today in addition to being our buddy sam had spent um what was it two years sam as an english teacher in, in hong kong uh yeah it was about two years about two years yeah and um and and the the end of that a very strange experience i believe where you had to go into a classroom and talk to a zoom screen is that right <laughs> yeah i mean i kind of experienced a year of fairly normal teaching and then um like eight months of of pandemic teaching and evolving right. along the way from the start and you know using skype and all these antiquated uh software techniques and then you know learning about zoom like everyone else and all these other ways of teaching <laughs> that's um yeah i imagine that that was that was quite a, a trial by fire i suppose and um i'd uh, i'd love to get get some more stories on that but um i do want to to um kick us off properly as we so often do um with a quote um i have one i know nick does as well i'm gonna go first um and here it is education is not the filling of a pail but the lighting of a fire and that's from uh william yates yeats 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 nick 
Yates. Yates. And I think that's interesting because it, it, it suggests that education, it's not about get getting getting Maybe stuff Yates, known. I don't know. <sighs> <laughs> it's not about just getting stuff known. It's about um, creating the spark, right? Education is the spark that allows us to go out and seek more knowledge rather than an end in itself. At least I think. Do you guys? What do you guys think? Do you like that quote? I like that a lot. I I totally resonate with that. I think yeah. education that you're that you enjoy um, sparks that journey into everything else, and that's sort of the journey of of the three of us as well. Yeah. Do you wanna Do you wanna tell uh, our our listeners the the story of of how we met, Sam? Um, I was studying abroad in London for about three and a half months, and it was my first day on campus with all the other students, and I was just getting used to the vibe in England where, you know, 19-year-old <laughs> and 18-year-old students go to the pub or the student bars, um, which yeah. don't exist in America because they're underage, um, and it was the Rugby World Cup, it and was. I was sitting by myself uh, on a very long table watching the game and a group of mostly English students came up and they were watching the game as well. And I just would lean in to their conversations at the other table uh, until uh, you or one of our other friends invited me over after about an hour, like, Hey, why don't you just come sit at this table? Uh, And that was about five years ago and almost six now. Yeah. And we've been friends ever since. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You and I have some. Adam and I, we, we, uh, you know, we've had our ups we've and had, downs. <laughs> we've had patches. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and so education built into the very, very bonds of 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 this podcast episode in particular. Um, Nick, did you have a quote as well? I did. Yeah, but it was sort of. Um, so this is this is these are the opening lines of the novel Hard Times by Charles Dickens, and they're spoken by Mr. Gradgrind, um, who educates his children as well as um, yeah, being the headmaster to the local school. And he's sort of a parody of like everything that you would hate about education, and um, one of Dickens's um, iconic ill-tempered men. Um, anyway, the, the quote is as follows: This is the opening to a book, uh, in in quotation marks. Now. What I want is facts. Teach these boys and girls nothing but facts. Facts alone are wanted in life. Plant nothing else and root out everything else. You can only form the minds of reasoning animals upon facts. Nothing else will ever be of any service to them. This is the principle on which I bring up my own children. And this is the principle on which I bring up these children. Stick to facts, sir. So, um, a bit of an antithesis to your quote. Um, and I was not... Yeah bringing it up as an opportunity to suggest what uh, the process of education should be, but rather maybe um, what it shouldn't be. And I think the one interesting takeaway that I wanted to draw from this is that um, this predicates not only like, um, well, sort of just predicates rationality and logic Mm -hmm. um, in the process of learning, but also rote learning, which is maybe, you know, a, a certain degree of competence, as we said in the first episode of this season, but um, without necessarily any comprehension behind it, just learning things and not learning the why and how. Um, and 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 additionally, maybe it's also very one-dimensional because, you know, there are uh, definitely other aspects of the human being that um, deserve to be nature, nurtured in the process 
of uh, education, like, you know, emotion, creativity, um, and all of the other ways in which uh, intelligence manifests itself. So, yeah, that's, that's, that was my... I, I think thought. that's very interesting. And um, I think it actually pairs nicely to um, some research that I, that I did for this episode, and I would love to, to get both of you, the f feedback from both of you on it, um, which is that, um, I, so I spoke to my, uh, my mum in preparation for this episode. My mum has been a teacher for, I don't know, 25 years now. Um, and I, I spoke to also a family friend of ours um, who is the director of an international school, um, uh, Nick and I both went to international schools, and and so that's the education system we're we're familiar with, um, the most, I suppose. And I asked my mum, you know, what's what's changed in the in the sort of since you started teaching in in the nineties, and um, and she said that uh, perhaps the biggest change is that when she started, it very much was about facts and rote learning, and um, now it's it's far more about um, sort of concepts and learning how to uh learn and encouraging inquiry more than anything else um and this was sort of echoed by by um vicky the family friend who said that you know when she started teaching it was sort of believed that it was about what the teacher had to impart and that now it's more about attempting to uh foster inquiry and that there were some false starts with that because initially it was we want to foster inquiry but about what we want the kids to inquire about whereas now it's a little bit more free-flowing see i have a i have a counter to that um oh, yeah. in that i'm a i'm a product of the american public school system <laughs> which can be very hit or miss um depending on what area of america and what city you grow up in mm -hmm. um i was privileged enough to to grow up in a really good uh, public school system um but what nick's quote brings to mind is sort of the idea of the STEM subjects to me, which is like science, technology, engineering, math. Um, and it feels like in my experience in the past, American schooling was a bit more what you guys are heading towards. And because of the American school system is falling a bit behind um, in terms of innovation and progress compared to uh, like East Asia and putting up these test numbers, uh, the American public school system, it seems, is is trying to get away from that and head more towards STEM and towards facts, computer science, engineering, um, medicine, and try to keep up with these other countries. It's interesting that you say that, Sam, because I I feel like um, although although there certainly are uh, scientific facts which which are important to know. It seems to me that science in particular is 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 a process of inquiry, right? Like the scientific uh, science isn't isn't like a thing. It's like a it's a system of asking questions and rigorous experimentation. Um, so, do you think that factors into it, or it's more about the scientific knowledge that goes into getting test results? I'm not sure to be honest with you, um, because I'm my my area of study has been rebelling against that notion <laughs> of of pushing STEM, and I went yeah. to a university that's all about STEM. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and uh, so I, well, I I've know. sort of been an academic uh, rebel against the STEM system being in the humanities, which is more and more unpopular in America. So, so wait, why did you re if if you rebelled? Why did you go to UCSD, which focuses on STEM? 
Well, they also have a really good history department. They're, okay. they're a good school overall. Right. I'm not saying that my intention was to rebel against it. It was just that my interests uh, led me to rebel against the STEM system, which incidentally is kind of what happened with you guys as well. Um, mm. So, Could you, what, what do you mean happened with us? <laughs> I mean, you guys are both very humanities based. That's true. I don't know mine was a conscious rebellion though. <laughs> this, this podcast, I would say, is a very good... Um, scientific scientific method uh sort of way into the humanities which i think is really Mm. cool you guys take these questions and you take these experiments and you you use these scientific processes to look at humanities subjects in a lot of ways which i really like that's why i like this podcast yeah we do do that that's right (laughs) i'll put that on our business card in future um and uh, yeah, that's 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 very interesting. Well, well, then I um, I, I suppose that 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 goes that would uh, also perhaps be questionable in terms of what what you taught abroad, which is English, which is a very defined kind of a inquiry. I don't know how much plays into um, language learning. What I mean, what do you think, Sean? But t- tell us a bit about your experiences of teaching English. Was it a learn this vocab list or was it a find a way to communicate this idea or did that vary based on the level you were teaching or, or what? So I think the curriculum itself when you teach in East Asia is very much learn the vocabulary, learn sentence structure, learn grammar, but what makes a good teacher or not is the one that can tap into the other elements because I don't think the students will retain knowledge if they're not using it practically or Mm -hmm. creatively. Um, If they're just learning vocabulary lists, then it's just words that they're memorizing. So I think a good teacher challenges them to incorporate these words into their daily lives and be more creative with the vocabulary. So were you were you given vocabulary lists by the school you worked with, or did you have to come up with that yourself? So disclaimer: I worked for a private for-profit um, okay. language company, which they're abundant and very popular in Asia um, mm-hmm. because these students go to school, uh, and then afterwards they go and do the English, they do math, they do violin, piano. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is sort of to give them an edge in school. Mm -hmm. Um, or to add something to the resume. Uh, So it depended on the level that I was teaching. Mm -hmm. So I had kids as young as two (laughs) in my classes, which which got pretty challenging during the Zoom times. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'd say with those young kids, it was just about letting them have fun in English (laughs) Mm -hmm. because young kids will pick up language just being immersed in it, um, even if they don't realize it. And uh, the older kids, it was more about, it was about higher concepts, but for me as a teacher, it was about keeping them having fun. <laughs> like they have this busy, busy schedule and making them look forward to the class was something really important to me because then they would get more out of it. Yeah, that's uh, that's super interesting. And it's interesting you say about um, how... Uh, it, it was some sort of something to add to the resume, add to the qualifications, because I think that that, that ties in nicely to another thing, which um, fam- family friend and international school director um, Vicky said on our, on our call, which was, I, she said that 
she was meeting she was at a conference um a while ago i i assume more than a year ago because it sounded like they were, they were in person um at where a group of educators all got together and discussed what um what was worth learning you know what actually is what should we be teaching in schools what is the point and over the course of a day or two days or whatever what that they came to was the idea that what we should be teaching is anything that contributes to the sustainable development goals and that everything else is essentially padding um and and i wonder what you guys what you guys think about that i don't know how familiar you are with the sustainable development goals um but it's all it's these are like sort of 17 things that the united nations has decided on that we as a as a global community should be focusing on over the next um decade or so you've got things like no poverty zero hunger good health quality education uh what's that i can't can't read it it's too small climate action life below water so fishes and such um uh peace uh justice and strong institutions um those are just a few of them um so what do you, what do you guys think about the purpose of education and how um particular language education might might relate to that but um in the case of language education it's maybe got an indirect impact on things you know and maybe there's a case to be made for um how these things relate um to this more or less directly you probably get a pretty clear sense of how this benefits you if you are studying you know uh, eco ecological practice or law or the yeah. concepts of justice and ethics or the structures of the united nations organizations and the international organizations that help maintain um you know, uh, you, uh, you know, worldwide diplomacy and establish these um, worldwide objectives for us as a species. But, you, you know, where does theatre fit in this? Um, mm. Where does, where, do, where, you know, where do the creative arts, you know, they, I, I think you can make a case for those being of value to the progress of um, the individual. But that's, that's, I think, the trouble with some of these things, right? Which is that uh, actually Salman Rushdie, uh, who, who, one of one of whose novels I recently finished, brilliant writer, uh, said that a, a book, a novel, doesn't have the power to change society, but it can change an individual, and and so at that level, you know, there are many many disciplines that we engage in, whether whether physical activity or a creative pursuits, which might you know help uh, develop us as individuals, as skilled individuals, as people with hobbies and, and, and recreational interest and, you know, creativity and skill and, and whatever else the case might be, but that directly wouldn't contribute to this necessarily. So um, I think it's vague enough that you can probably fit most things under it, but I think there is something to be said for that aspect of things, which might be negated a little bit and sort of places common objectives above purely just individual development as well and how those two interact. I, I think there's something to that, and it is certainly true that a lot of them are are vague enough that stuff can fit under it. Like the third sustainable development goal is good health and well-being. Well, what's well-being? Anything that's um, positive for people in general. I do think it's interesting that that comes from Salman Rushdie. Um, you know, the idea that a novel can change an individual but not society, because his book, The Satanic Verses, was I I believe banned, and um, Ayatollah Khomeini declared a fatwa against Rushdie because of this book. Yeah. 
So it was clearly thought that it, it was subversive enough to have an impact on society by by the leaders of Iran. Yeah. Um, so I, I wonder if that did, does this fact change your interpretation of that at all, Nick? Or uh, not not at all. Actually, he was bringing it up like I think precisely in relation to that point and being asked about the degree to which he writes in order to try and change the world. Right. I see. And so he said, well. I, 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 you know, it, it's difficult for a novel to be a plea towards uh, a higher institution or uh, a, a, a practice that's culturally embedded. But if you can ignite that spark in enough individuals, or you can ignite that spark in an individual who will then go on to create institutional change, then maybe there's a knock-on effect, but that's not something with which he can preoccupy himself. So if there is an agenda to storytelling, it is to um, change the mind of the individual, not the role of society. Otherwise, he would be writing other things, a political treatise, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, um, an, uh, an economic theory. Yeah, that was, that was the point. Um, but I will say also sort of as an addition to that, um, which is a reflection of the first point you took from your conversations, that um, watching a TED talk about um, learning and gamification, which I may talk about later on, mm-hmm. One, uh, Scott Hebert, who gave a talk called The Power of Gamification, uh, which, again, I might bring up later, mentioned that if education was uh, sort of tangible enough to be a commodity, no one would invest in it because the parameters of education are that you're trying to, you would be trying to sell something. And so use the example of like, if Apple came to you and said, please invest in us developing this laptop, which is never gonna have a different set of features. Like we're gonna create an immutable fixed laptop and it won't adapt to the environment it's in or to the market or to the nature of our needs. We're just gonna keep it exactly the same. Like no one is buying that product, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Because it'll, it'll become obsolete quite quickly. And so I think, yeah, maybe the, ch- the challenge of education today is to keep up with this accelerated pace of learning. And so maybe there is of, of you know, information and progress and development and change and fluctuation um, in the world. And, and, and that's not an easy thing to adjust to, you know. Um, and, and so maybe there is some merit to setting objectives which are in the near to distant future, you know, that are palatable that we can aim towards, um, you know. Well, I suppose the value that, that it, relating that back to the sustainable development goals, the value is that these are, um, these are goals set over a 15 year period. So we had the millennium development goals set in 2000 and then the sustainable development goals were set in 2015 and there'll be yeah. a new goal set in 2030, yeah. which yeah. is perhaps slow by the standards of Apple computers, but, but in terms of global education oh. reform is, sure. is mightily quick. Um, yeah. Actually, Sam, I have one question sort of relating to this for you. And one of the things which I was thinking about in terms of like fundamental difference, which is to say, if we look at education as the act of, forming individuals, uh, individuals who are then going to become fully functioning and contributing uh, participants in a society, um, then we're, you know, we, we, we give them a, a field of learning in which they can afford to, you know, figure out how best to conduct themselves going forward. And one of the crucial differences in, in you know, these last couple of decades is the advent of like technology and, and more specifically the supercomputer that sits in your pocket, which, um, you know, uh, Adam, for instance, very well knows because you don't actually need to know anything by rote anymore if you have a supercomputer in your pocket. 
Like that is a far more powerful tool for having access to information, <laughs> right? Um, I would like to point out, listener, that what Nick is referring to uh, when he says that I well know this is, is an unfortunate habit of mine, whereby when we will be having a conversation about something that, that Nick has just found out, I will, I will Google it while we are talking and um, inevitably know more about it by the end of Nick's sentence than he did at the start. Uh, and I know that that's a bad habit and annoying. And thank you for calling me out on it on this podcast. Well, no, but it's... it's, it's um... <laughs> It is annoying, but it is also, <laughs> but it is also, you know, progressive in a sense and, and, and playing to the advantages that you have access to. And in a way it is sort of this like enlightenment dream of like all of knowledge accessible at your fingertips whenever you want it, you know? And so that sort of reduces at least to a degree, the value of learning by rote as does the possibility of automation because rote learning leads to repetition, you know, the, the, uh, manual uh, approach of just mechanizing something, you know, and just making it sort of a thoughtless streamlined process. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I wonder if you had some thoughts, Sam, on your own education and also your practice of teaching of like how, how that fundamentally changes learning and whether there is something to be said for like, what's the point of having closed books, closed book te tests, for instance, um, or classrooms where individuals are then going to go out into the world where they always have access to a smartphone. You know, they'll rarely, if ever, be, right. be in a situation where they can't actually just Google the answer, you know? Yeah, I think um, this brings up an interesting point that I haven't really thought about too much. Um, but when I was in school, everything was closed book tests. And mm. there were very few projects and um, like summative assessments that uh, would give you that grade at the end. It was always closed book tests. And I still teach a bit, like I tutor some kids that are older in Hong Kong that are about 13 or 14. And um, they'll show me their homework and stuff and they go to international school. And for example, their, one of their music classes, um, they, were, they were tasked with putting a soundtrack to a Wallace and Gromit clip. <laughs> so, so they were just given the clip and then they, their school is very much about teaching them how to use these tools and to interact with the world. It's a music class. He's taught music theory and all of this mm. stuff. Um, but in his project, he also had to edit video and had it sync up music that he wrote for this scene. Um, and I just thought that was really, really cool because it's, it's giving you the tools um, to use these theories instead of just memorize the theories themselves and they're doing coding and they're doing all of these things that I don't even know how to do. Um, and they're about 13. So I so a really, lot more advanced than what I yeah, did at 13. That's really, cool. I, I really respect these, these new approaches to learning because I, I firmly believe you're right. That education should be about equipping people with the tools to, to go into the world and not just a heap of information to take into the world that might be obsolete in 10 years or 20 years. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and I think it relates to the, the sort of other big takeaway that I, that I had from this, this conversation um, with, with uh, Vicky in particular about um, I, I asked about uh, whether, whether she thought that the traditional model of schools where you have, you know, you have your math class, you have your English, you have French science, whatever. Um, but these quite discrete subjects, whether that was still an appropriate model. And what she said is, she said, how I think about it is, um, I, I saw a graphic once, which I wasn't able to find online, but 
it's it's a triangle that goes up and, and on top of the triangle is a square. And at the bottom of the triangle are basic things like literacy, numeracy, um, really basic skill and like interpersonal skills as well, really basic things. And then as you go up, you need to acquire fewer of these basic skills, but you apply them to a much broader field of things. And that's the square that goes on top. Um, and so I, I think that, that that relates into it somewhat. And I think that even the, the basic skills maybe have, um, certainly in, with these kids that you're talking about, Sam, what's been considered a basic skill has, has expanded a little bit, right? To computer literacy, which is certainly a, you know, uh, I was taught computer literacy and probably we all were to a degree or at least versed in it, but we're probably the first generation to have been taught computer literacy from early school. I would, I would guess maybe a few years. Old Computers that, back then, uh, everything I learned in, in the computer classes, I've not applied anymore <laughs> on those, on those big clunky Apple. Oh, yeah. The, oh, we didn't have those, man. We had like, oh, they were a real joke. That I, I, I mean, this was back when you had to, if you were writing a CV, you would put proficient with Microsoft Word. You know, like um, I still put that. Do you don't, really? Don't shame it. <laughs> I assume, I assume it's like expected that you know how to use Word. <laughs> should be, but they should also know that I am versed in okay. it. <laughs> I take it back then. Um, but yeah, so I, I wonder, like, do you? I suppose, again, I don't know what level you, you taught, Sam. Like, did you teach people who were at the beginning and, and doing basic building blocks or people who had spoken for a while and now need to expand the basics to a wider you know, variety of scenarios? I taught, I taught everything in between. I taught those two-year-olds that barely spoke Cantonese or Mandarin that were also <laughs> being put in English class. And then I also taught the 13-year-olds that speak English at home and maybe have one foreign parent. Mm -hmm. um and teaching them you know the basic structures of essay writing and then um but when i was training i also taught master's students who are from france who are visiting america um and they were in an it master's program i believe and they were sent to america to to practice their english so um i was having to teach them you know how to use business jargon and all of this uh other stuff so i've you know, for someone that didn't major in English, uh, have a lot of experience with all the various levels the way through. Um, but that's revealed a lot of different factors in education that apply to not just English teaching. Interesting. Well, I, I suppose that um, what my, my next question would be there, and this, this relates to both, both you, Nick, uh, Sam, and, and you, Nick, based on the research you've done, is that when I'm practicing languages and I'm not in a formal language class, I often do it through an app. I do uh, I do a lingua I've done. It's not my favorite. I use one called Busu quite a lot, which is pretty good. Or or I do like a various flashcards app. So what do you, what do you guys think? Gamifying in in terms of uh, I suppose especially language learning since that's the expertise we have with us. But in general, what do you guys think about that as a tool? Maybe we'll start with Nick and and from the research you did and such. Sure. Um... Well, we, I spoke about gamification last week with regards to habit building mm -hmm. and uh, for the sake of clarification, what, what is sort of suggested by that is the, the, the process of taking game components like um, reward or concept um, and applying them to like non-game environments in a sense, right? Um, and and um, thereby hopefully taking on some of the qualities that make games so interesting and appealing and uh, to these maybe drier 
less engaging concepts. So we did we did a little bit on the like the merits of gamification in and of itself last week. Um, with regards to learning, um, well, I, I, I'll have I have a fair bit to say. I, I, I think I'll just do a couple things quickly. And the first is to suggest that um, well, firstly. Um, there is no distinction between playing and learning um, up until a certain age, I think, which is right. important to note, right? It's it's sort of um, the practice of learning as you play is very natural. Like that that's sort of like a, a, a totally, uh, you know, embedded overlapping thing when you're a toddler or a child, mm -hmm. right? Because learning and play, you know, there is no distinction. And progressively, as you grow older, those aspects of your life become more and more compartmentalized. It's also something that you see in the rest of the animal kingdom. And, you know, you, you see that with like lion cubs playing with each other in aggressive manner and building the necessary skills to become successful hunters, you know? And then never necessarily losing that gift of playing with their siblings, but certainly taking on responsibility as adults do, even in um, the lion family. And um, and but <laughs> the but, lion so, family and their taxes that they have to do. Yeah, exactly. Eventually, the weight of the world hits us all. <laughs> <laughs> even the kings and queens of the jungle. So I mean, okay, I, another aside. They don't live in the jungle. Who has spun this lie that lions are the king of the jungle? They don't live in jungles. You know, they live well, in savannas. It's people not going to school, not doing their gamified <laughs> lesson plans. Yeah, so, sure. I mean, I'd, sure. I'd like to point out that um, last last week you guys discussed uh, this topic, and I think Adam referred to when he slid by in a class by playing Assassin's Creed 2. Um, <laughs> like I'm, I'm currently in a, a master's program for history. And before I'd even taken a history class, because we take those embarrassingly late in America, um, I was playing Rome Total War. <laughs> um, I don't know if you guys have heard of that game, yeah. but you basically control like the Roman Empire and conquer Europe and, and whatnot. And, um, and I knew so much about this world and became so interested in geography and history before I had even known it was really a subject. And lo and behold, I'm a history major today. <laughs> um, but that was because a lot of the games I played, Assassin's Creed, all of these things, I, I would build background knowledge and then I would see something in, in a game and I'd say, well, is that true? And the magic of Google you know, find mm, out yeah. yes or no. No, Da Vinci didn't really make like these tanks that Ezio drives around in. So unfortunately well i think but, there are there are some potential limitations to gamification and um, particularly in the context of learning but um i will say firstly that i, I sort of um for my own personal thinking and f um as a result of the sort of reading and uh, watching that i did for this sake uh, there are some qualities to playing and to playfulness right um and and the first that is 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 it's fun so mm -hmm. You know, it it can be engaging, um, and it's sort of relaxed. It's it's like a fairly low stakes environment. You know, unless you don't want it to be, but you can sort of control those parameters. You know, um, it can be competitive to the degree degree you want it to, or inclusive to the degree that you want it to be. Um, it can again, yeah, challenge, um, not beyond capability, nor easy beyond capability. So it, it can it's a very easy space in which to find a state of flow. You know, um, it's fundamentally creative because there's more freedom um, to play around within the parameters 
of the objective and tasks, even in a, you know, in a game universe, like the more sophisticated the universe, the more cool shit you can go do, like run around, explore um, maps and et cetera, so on and so forth, pick your missions, pick how you want to progress, whatever the case might be. And we're using the analogy of video games because um, it's, it's a fairly obvious one and it's a pretty popular one actually in terms of uh, taking gamification and reapplying it to learning. Um, and, and yeah, and so, so this individualization of the process is also an, an important aspect rather than this sort of standardized rote learning trope of um, um, mass production education. And then finally, I think the crucial thing for me is that it's interactive. So playing a game as much as um, it's maybe relaxing, relaxing, distracting for the purposes of entertainment um, has the one distinction, again, if you think of vi video games, even comparatively to movies, for instance, is that it requires the user to play it, you know? Right. And, and so that is a sort of a fundamental aspect of, of gamification, which you wouldn't necessarily get by being lectured at, say, mm -hmm. right? Um, and simply just taking in knowledge in a more passive context. That being said, gamification, um, in order to be engaging, and this is sort of like the primary maybe flaw that I found with it, um, is or the, the, the first two is that it's sort of analogous to what you're trying to learn in and of itself. Like you can dress things up in order to understand and appreciate them and go about learning them. Um, but like, you know, having the Duolingo owl sort of wagging, <laughs> wagging a wing at you or whatever, um, is, is, is not tantamount to like, you know, um, learning Spanish. There is all this extra stuff and, and that's cool. You can create these missions and concepts and worlds to make the thing more enticing, but maybe it takes you a degree of remove away from that thing itself, which you're trying to learn, which in turn might, um, yeah, hold more, more barriers to actual, the actual core knowledge component, even if it will accelerate your process of learning because of your higher degree of engagement. You know, so um, I think there's that for it. And then potentially it can be superficial. People can be enticed for, for the wrong reasons and can sort of exploit the opportunism of just wanting the playfulness, um, even if there is some secondhand learning, um, you know, uh, some unconscious progress being made. So um, yeah, so the superficiality of it and the sort of analogous nature of it to the learning component you're trying to establish might be potential obstacles to it. I don't know what you guys' thoughts are to there or to the qualities, um, which I was bringing up as well. My experience with apps like Duolingo in terms of language is that they only work if you're consistent. Mm. Um, my, I myself have, you know, tried to brush up on my Spanish um, to communicate with my family back in America better with. Um, and I've found that it works, but then, you know, I might take a few weeks off from Duolingo and I have to start, you know, a few levels back. Uh, it's very easy to, to forget these little tasks that they teach you because they kind of teach you in a micro sort of way it's like very uh little vocabulary at a time which is good for for the amount of time you're spending but if you're inconsistent then you're just gonna forget it all um relatively quickly i i think that's true and I, I think that um with with apps like that for example that uh that it's also important to remember that these shouldn't be the, the be all and end all of, of the education. Like I do think they play a role um, and that is the rote aspect. And I don't think rote is, is um, should be abandoned entirely. I think it does have its place, um, but it, 
you know if you, if that's all you're doing you you won't achieve sort of fluency but it, it it's good for keeping your hand in. and it's good because it, it doesn't take a lot of commitment i think it's like right you know you've got your phone with you in your pocket most days and you can you know well used to be when you were waiting for a bus now i guess when you're at, in the bathroom <laughs> whatever you can do your five ten minutes on doing spanish um i'd like to bring up one aspect of of this as well um yeah in general for education is I think apps like Duolingo break down uh, a financial barrier with Duolingo yeah. being free. And I wanted sure. to, to bring up that point, um, you know, in one of my articles I wrote, plug there, um, in one of the articles I wrote for the New Bohemian, I mentioned that one of the leaders of the Hong Kong revolution, Joshua Wong, you can tell his background because of his accent. So in Hong Kong, basically everyone speaks English to some extent. Um, and some people have a very Americanized accent. You can tell they went to an, uh, the American International School or Canadian International School. Um, and some people sound very British um, and they maybe went to one of the various other British education systems uh, within the city because there are so many private schools. And then you have the people that couldn't afford to go to these schools or have tutors in English. And you can definitely hear it in their accent. It's a very... Mm-hmm. Um, like Cantonese English uh, and I pointed out that even though he's very educated uh, he grew up pretty poor and I know I don't know how much international school costs in Switzerland I know private school in America is Not very cheap. expensive yeah so I just wanted to ask you guys' opinion of of like the price of education mm. well uh, this was uh, I mean, we when when Nick and I did the the um, guest appearance on the Reads podcast, um, it's still available now, and you should check it out uh, wherever podcasts are found. Um, th- we read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, and he and he uh, wrote in the beginning of his his sort of diary, which is all Meditations is, that he was very grateful that um, he he had he had uh, his father, I believe, had had paid for private tutors rather than than attending public schools, and he thought that it was. Um, uh, a good investment. Now, I do think that um, education uh, is a is a worthwhile investment, and it should be uh, paid for. That said, it's an investment that should be made by by society primarily. I think, um, and that uh, and and that we all benefit from from people having an education, right? Like the the um, the amount of opportunities that are afforded to the society as a whole when everyone has the opportunity to pursue intellectual um capabilities is 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 immeasurable um that's yeah that's where i would lie with that mm. yeah i was just yeah. curious Sorry. because my my world i come from you know america notoriously has ever increasing university costs yeah. every election cycle i'm just like okay who's promising that they'll they'll waive the debts <laughs> um but yeah, I, I know over here in Europe, like, you know, maybe private school is expensive, but then when you get to university level, it's a lot cheaper than America. It is. In Britain, it's it's creeping up and up, of course, um, which is uh, a shame. Um, although it's, it is weird how they fund it. I think that's, a, uh, and how the loan system works in the UK is, is bizarre and not like other loans, but that's perhaps a, a topic for, for a different podcast. Right. Um, but But yeah, I think that, I think that part of the reason that um, that particularly with well, particularly with schools and particularly with American universities, actually, is that paying for education, I think, makes 
a it has to be uh affordable and reasonable for for people uh, and that if you can't afford whatever course you want to do there should be schemes available to it for the purpose that you know people have different aptitudes and and pursuing those aptitudes can um reap benefits across the whole society but the more specialized it is the more sort of okay i am with with charging money for it if that makes sense like if you you know like that's why a lot of public schools are free right because these skills literacy numeracy whatever are very important if you want to become an expert in um adobe dreamweaver which i believe is the software for creating augmented reality software that's very specialist and perhaps then that makes sense to pay for it because you know that you're going to use it for a specific purpose and 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 reap the rewards immediately whereas other things might have more of a delayed return or a law degree or a law degree yeah for example yeah um, which is a postgraduate qualification in america i believe whereas in britain it's undergraduate usually yeah you got to school go to school for a long time to be a lawyer but also the pay i think of lawyers and doctors in america is quite a bit higher than england at least um so that's their justification for the postgraduate costs and which I have a friend that goes to USC uh, law school and he, I believe he said it was something like $90,000 a term. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot of money. But that's what I mean is, is at what point is education, you know, where, where should the barriers be put down? Because unless you're getting a scholarship, almost no one can afford that. Well, this, 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 I suppose, uh, falls into a question around capitalism, which I'm willing to have, but 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 is maybe not the topic of this episode. I think it, it yeah, goes down enough. to like you know what you can convince people to pay for, right? And unless there are some controls in place, then that spirals out of control. When the um, particularly when um, job markets and wages have been repressed, and and we're told that um, these expensive degrees are are ways out of that. Now it's more complicated than that, uh, of course. Um, but I don't probably have the uh, economics background to to discuss it properly. Well, my my it does become an economics this, question, I think. Yeah, my opinion on this subject only was very heightened when I was working in Hong Kong because, like I said, we were a for-profit learning center, so all of the students uh, had the means to pay for private tutors. Some of them were investing a lot of their livelihood to send their kids to get these extra qualifications while some of them were just pretty wealthy and willing to do it. But that gap in, in Asian society, for example, it's not just in Hong Kong in China and Japan, a lot of these uh, wealthy students get a lot more opportunity. Um, but yeah, I just thought that would uh, bring that point. And it's, it's one, uh, one to consider certainly. Um, and I, as I, as, as is so often the case, don't have an answer <laughs> on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I guess what this makes me think of is, you know, what you're trying to achieve with education, right? So as much as it is a, a question of economics, um, it's a, it's a socioeconomic question and a political one too. And, mm. you know, to have high barriers to entry means that only a certain section of the population 
will have access to those schools and will grow up to have children who will have access to those schools and probably, you know, um, sit on the boards of those schools and create, you know, self-serving interest, uh, you know, and then, of course, there is, um, there are maybe dramatic, um, dramatic requirements to making, um, you know, equality of opportunity, a practical reality for everyone when equality of outcome is not controlled, right? Because if people with the same starting points go on to have access to different resources, do different things with their lives, reach different level of success to then make their children start at the same point is, is you know, perhaps a tricky question, perhaps not. Um, and And it makes me think of, you know, sort of, Plato's Republic, where children are are taken away from their families and raised by the by the state, essentially, you know. And there are different classes of citizen. There's the bronze class who are like the artisans, and you know the people who work the fields. And then there's the silver class who are like the warriors. And then at the top is the intellectuals and the kings, and you know the the, the royals, the rulers. And you know you get taken in, and for the most part, you will remain in your class, but based on your skill set and your early inclinations, you can transition in or out of your, of your mm. strata of society. Now, is that the way to go about doing it by, you know, taking children away from their parents and making it a much more uniform process that the state therefore controls? That's a scary amount of power to afford to the state. If we live in a pure, you know, democratized free market, maybe these things will will either, you know, maybe naturally balance themselves out or maybe they'll be exploited or whatever the case might be. And obviously there's a lot of um, complications to that. Or, you know, all, all to say um, that it's certainly a very nuanced question and there are, there are always um, multiple things to consider. I think generally speaking though, this, um, this cost of education must at some point balance itself out because the qualification aside and this sort of academic inflation aside of what you previously needed, high school education, you now need a, a BA for, and what you needed a BA for previously, you now need a master's for and a PhD and, and 10 years of work experience to start a graduate scheme. And eventually that system has to collapse. Like that, that yeah. is not a sustainable process. And additionally, people who are unable to access um, these these resources, well, well, they have supercomputers in their pockets. So if you're industrious enough, like you can teach yourself the majority of those same trappings, you know. Um, and and actually, that sort of leads me to a question for well, for both of you, but particularly for you, maybe Sam, um, which is that um, you know, in in now this environment where ever more information and access to it is democratized. Um, aside from just the process of learning and what you should be teaching children, what actually do you think is the role of a teacher in 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 that space? You know, because maybe ultimately, like if you're paying to sit on Zoom, if you're paying nine grand of tuition a year to go to an in English university, and you're paying to sit on Zoom to read and discuss things that you could read by yourself. You know, what what is the function of the teacher there? Um, and you know, I know that's a broad philosophical question, but maybe maybe you have some thoughts towards that. Well, let me just say, as an American in England, I'm paying more than nine thousand a year to be able yeah. to. Yes, yeah, so I'm <laughs> generic undergraduate degrees, but yes, that's that's not the point. Um, yeah, I I strongly believe that that educators and teachers are guides rather than 
rather than just fountains of information where the student has to have a bucket to, to get all the information and they can only take so much. Um, I always have found that teaching um, has respect at its, at its core, whether you're teaching a three-year-old or you're teaching a university student. Um, if the student doesn't respect the teacher, they're not gonna get as much out of that course. Um, and I learned that not when I was in university even, I learned that in my first job, which was um, I was working on after school sort of daycare program for uh, underprivileged youths. Uh, and the best guy on staff, I was 17 at the time, he was 18. And we were charged with like taking care of 14 year olds, you know, uh, so, you know, it was like the blind leading the blind, but he was the best person on staff out of all the adults, everyone there, because he had grown up at that center. He would go there every day mm. after school. He started going there when he was 11 years old. Um, some of the kids that were now like 13, 14, like the leaders of the pack that could potentially be troublemakers were little kids when he was going there and he was the big kid. Um, and they, he applied for that job at 16 years old. He was like waiting, waiting, waiting. And then this was like his dream job to work, to work at this place. And every kid loved him. And it's because he showed them respect. He knew what it's like to be in their position. Um, and I know it's not explicitly teaching, but they learned a lot from, from this guy. Mm -hmm. And they learned a lot from the rest of us as well. Uh, I think at any level, you got to treat the students with respect without, without uh, breaking down that discipline barrier. Um, I think I've gotten the most out of my students when I was teaching them English or any other subject when I was treating them like a human being, when especially in Asia, I feel these students were just talked down to a lot of the time. And when they came into my classroom, I wanted them to feel like they could ask a question. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible to be wrong. That's why we're here. It's, we're here to learn. And, you know, I'll talk to them like my buddies, fist bump if we're doing a good job. Like, let's laugh. Let's have a good time. Um, and those were the students I saw making the most progress were the ones I would walk in and they'd be super excited to be in class. And I think that's the same with all my other teacher friends I know. So once I give respect um, to their students, the students flourish. So, yeah. That's great. I like that a lot. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with that. And um, and and what I would add to it is that um, I think that the value of teachers and, and formal education in, in particular is that um, certainly the guide. Uh, I know it, uh, historically at, at Oxford, where I uh, just finished my master's, um, well, not just anymore, but where I finished my master's, lectures historically were sort of frowned upon they sort of got in the way um and they they were all about you know the lectures they were certainly about guiding learning very very explicitly and i think that what it also comes down to off the back of that is, is having an environment for learning and this was something that i got from talking to my to my mom and to, to vicky as well which is that um a lot of teachers now will will work hard to create environments which which spark interest in in all, all, all the students where possible and and so you want to have a lot of variety in a classroom for example so that there's something for all the kids there. and i think that that is what has perhaps been particularly difficult about the transition to online learning during the pandemic because you know a lot of kids are trying to learn in their bedroom like it's so it's so hard to to, to not be able to go to a library a place of learning to go to a school a place of learning um because you have it's such a different context and you have such different associations with it. Um, and I think that is, that is um, the value of, of 
the school is as valuable as the, t- the teacher in that case, I think I would say. Um, and, and I think that that, that pays into the, the, the idea around um, paying for education as well. The, the, the example that I, I wanted to raise there was of Finland, where um, private schools are, are not allowed. And so the rich and the poor go to the same schools. And that means that like rich parents give money to public schools. And so they're all quite nice. And like they all have a lot of resources and do things that are going to make learning the, the learning environment a good place to learn for for lots of um for, for lots of children and 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 i and i wonder in a way how this this plays into um education with with regards to play right because as you pointed out nick that in in the early years and in the animal kingdom certainly play and, and learning are, are indistinguishable um but as we have formalized learning as things become more more sort of uh uh, complex intellectual, less um, intuitive, because I think a lot of play learning is, is about becoming in touch with intuition more than anything else. Um, formalized learning requires uh, uh, formalized structures, and part of that is environment, and part of that is relationship, I think, between mentor and, and student, um, as, you said, as you said, Sam. Mm. Mm. Um, I would add to that as well, right? And actually, which sort of fits into both of those components, the environment and the supervisor, the teacher, the instructor, whatever the term might be, the coach, um, which is that I, I listened to another TED talk on the subject of gamification um, by a YouTuber called Mark uh, Rober, 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 uh, who's quite a famous YouTuber, actually. Um, he's got like 2 billion uh, plays, and he's an ex-NASA uh, scientist who worked on the Mars rover and, and then um, started his own kind of you know engineering company and then went to work for Apple, and then in the end just does YouTube, basically, where he sort of um, playfully teaches science in a really engaging manner, actually. Um, and, and he did this TED Talk, which is huge as well, got like 18 million views, um, or to date, on YouTube. Um, titled the Super Mario effect and basically his again pointing to video games as a great example of gamification right is um, that his insight from this 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 appropriation of gaming as a culture to learning is that um, those who don't see failing as negative do better right and that that's something that we lose this sort of self-consciousness and this like fear of consequence is um, a disincentive to, to working and and is actually embedded into being graded, right? Um, and which is not to say that we should do away with that, um, like all of these other things. You know, there is a space for learning, as you said, and all these other things. But um, to reframe the learning process as um, doing doing something because you want to you want to beat the game, like you want to succeed and get to where you're going, rather than just um, you know, you, you're, you're, um, you're enduring against your true desire to quit, um, you know, or, or, or being held back by your fear of failure, you know, and use the example of toddlers learning to walk, like a toddler learning to walk has no fear of failure. You know, actually the right. toddler's lack of fear is frightening. That's why it has 24 seven supervision, you know, and a fear again has its place as well, but like in a video game, like no matter how many times you fail, like it might be extremely frustrating, 
but you'll still be enticed to go again because the yeah. threshold to failure is very low. Like nothing else happens other than you go back to your previously saved point. Mm. You know, if that is like you start depleting and you have to pay or, you know, it comes at a cost or like a public humiliation, or whatever that might, you know, disincentivize you from moving away from that. And um, actually this also, um, and, and I'll finish on the subject of gamification here. One last sort of elaboration is um, from another, um, from another TED talk by a guy called uh, Yukai Chu, um, who, who, whose TED talk was called gamification to improve our world. Right, who says that um, the process of gamification um, does not start with game elements, but starts with our core desires, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not about like superficially attributing points to people, but actually tapping into our core desires for learning. And I think this relates to like the role of the teacher as well as the environment. Um, and he actually reduces it to eight core desires, um, which which I'll um, which I will. Uh, list off now um and the first of which actually is is um which i'm sure you'll like adam is epic meaning and calling which video Amazing. games do a lot of right yeah. it's like it's up to you to save the world that's a core design like yeah. that much responsibility <laughs> like it's in your hands that's a huge degree of empowerment great that's a big narrative to be a part of go ahead and save the world um development and accomplishments right which is you know sort of tracking your progress um, and and having a sense of of moving through things, right? And you get that in video games in a way that you sort of get with school to a degree, but um, you know you make it to the next grade. I, but in video games, you level up, right? You know, it's not like just this. Well, this necessary process of like, well done, you survived. But it's like, oh, you've done enough. Now you have this much. You're you're level. You know, whatever. Um, and and so that's that's the that's a big one and being able to track that and 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 measure your short term accomplishment and watch that turn into sort of medium and long term accomplishment and build a vision and a, and a clear sense of progress, um, the empowerment of creativity and feedback, right? Which is to to be able to be given enough responsibility that like and the example he uses is Lego actually, is that you're given the building blocks but you do with them what you will, you know. Um, and and so to be to be and and you from there are then given enough feedback from peers or self evaluation that you then progress through those means right. But to be empowered creatively again another core drive for wanting to learn um, ownership and possession is is another big one to protect and accumulate right. Um, so again, in this case the example is like um, if you. If you, he actually he was talking about this really cool concept called Dragon Box, where like in the middle of a screen, uh, in the center of a screen, there's a box in which a dragon sits, and um, the dragon will only come out to eat if um, if the space around it is cleared. And around it basically are what essentially are disguised math problems. So kids have to solve math problems. <laughs> Once the problems become solved, they disappear from the screen. Um, so that the dragon will then observe, see everything's empty and come out to eat. And then he's like, so you you own this dragon and you watch it grow. And it's like, you know, um, uh, you know, it could be a bank balance if you were an adult or whatever. <laughs> right. um, like being then, friends with a nerdy Tamagotchi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Tamagotchi is a great example, right? Ownership yeah. and possession, if you could flip that into learning. Um, social influence and relatedness, right? Um, which is... Which is um, Obviously, how you stand in relation to your peers, and um, again, he used the the the, the example of a startup which promised to reduce your utility bill, um, and which found immense success because it promised to compare you to your neighbors, <laughs> basically, 
right? Or to your neighborhood. And so like this sense of like, oh, I'm actually not better than average. I stand or how I stand in relation to someone. So it's the spirit of competitiveness, essentially, you know, and therefore what that means for your social standing in terms of outcome. Um, yeah, scarcity and impatience. So wanting to access something before it um, expires, wanting something just because you can't have it. Uh, unpredictability and curiosity, you know, the reason why for which we finish movies um, mm -hmm. or novels or indeed gamble, right, um, in order to find out. Um, and and then and then finally loss and avoidance you can be you can you know which is which is sort of the opposite of desire right it's like the the, the stick to the carrot which um and again he's the example of like there's an app which again sort of like virtual it's like the example of virtual reality of like if you put on a virtual reality headset that created the illusion that you were being chased by zombies whilst you were running you know right. in order to incentivize you to to exercise um and um and so yeah so so i think i think beyond just the, the 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 teacher and the environment i think tapping into like a core a core reason like a fundamental reason for wanting to go and accomplish this rather than just it's because we told you to or this is the right thing for you to be doing and which puts you directly in opposition with you wanting to be elsewhere or wanting to do other things, you know, in a perfect world, you would want to be learning the whole time and you'd be enjoying that process and you'd be doing so for, for reasons which have depth to them rather than just the superficial, well, that's what all children do and that's what we have to be going through and indeed all adults. Um, so yeah, sorry, a bit of a long winded point, but um, no, it's a, it's a good one. Make sure call, sure. call those in. Shout out to, shout out to Mark Rober's videos where he, where he, um, has those Amazon boxes. Have you yeah. seen those? Yeah. No, what happens? He's got, he, he's like a super genius engineer, like Nick said. Yeah, so, it's so, and, crazy. It, and it's, it is kind of a problem in America to where Amazon boxes get stolen around Christmas. So this guy has created a box where when you lift it up, um, it looks like an Amazon package. And then it's this super high tech got an iPhone on all sides to record. It sprays glitter that sticks to you. It has this super smelly smell that it sprays and it just makes them like throw the box out after mm. spraying their house with, with all that stuff. So, sorry, yeah, I know fantastic. that was off topic, but, no, but he, does, it, he does a lot of, I mean, he's worked on some pretty amazing projects and some for some pretty amazing companies and stuff. I mean, he worked on the Mars Rover, you know, so his engineering is like up there. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he like specifically in this talk, he was, he was talking about like teaching his audience on YouTube to code, which was like creating a maze basically full of obstacles or like breaking down a Mario Kart game basically and allowing users to input the instructions in language though, in a sequencing of language. And once you had said, first he does this, then he does that, then he does that, then he does this. And, and then like hitting play and watching him either successfully or unsuccessfully do that. He was like, well, that's coding. You know, and it's like, I'm just gamifying it, you know, um, it's like, so, and I want you to know that everyone can, can do that. Um, and, and yeah, anyway, it came with some really interesting insight, but yeah, he does super cool things. Adam, you would love him, honestly. Like he, he builds giant Nerf guns oh. and like, he designed, he designed a dartboard that moves according to your arrow in order for you to hit a perfect bullseye. Every That's time. exactly what I need. I'm <laughs> terrible at darts. <laughs> Dude's got it all as well. He doesn't look like a typical genius engineer he's like model all right all right like, mark Rober is brilliant and has a can't better show than we do <laughs> yeah, Ooh, so okay. why don't you go and make a podcast with mark <laughs> <Exactly>. rober 
<laughs> why aren't you more like Mark Rover, Adam? I don't know why this became about you. <laughs> it's because you're the one who doesn't know about him. It's He's true. so cute. I don't know how. He has like 16 million subscribers. Yeah. I just, yeah. just found out about him. Anyway, guys, we've been going on for like over an hour. It's hard to know on Zoom because we don't have the time telling us how long mm. we're going. But um, I think we've talked about a lot. And I think that this was fascinating. We did descend into bullying me for not being Mark Rober, and that's okay. Um, but apart from a crucial takeaway from this, apart one. from Mark Rober's YouTube channel, um, does anyone have any final points or indeed things they wish to plug? I don't know. Sam, um, I write for a website called uh, The New Bohemian, <laughs> and <laughs> you might hear these guys plug it every week um so if you if you have managed to read those articles uh this is the voice this is the annoying voice to those articles um and hopefully we have some big things coming on that website and if you also enjoy writing um or doing creative things then reach out to us because we would love to have you on our team yeah yep, awesome new bohemian magazine awesome at gmail.com yeah um is our email address uh also any good email address for this podcast um we we were very ambitious at the start of the first lockdown and started lots uh but only made one email so there we are <laughs> yeah oh actually i do i do want to plug a song i released a song with uh my associate the wolf as kamau and the wolf k-a-m-a-u and the wolf moving backwards it's available everywhere spotify soundcloud itunes um youtube so on and so forth Go check it out. Add it to your playlist. Follow me on all those platforms. Thank you very also, much. Also, I'd like to plug Nick's song, Home for the Holidays, which was like a year ago. <laughs> I, it's it's a banger. So I'd like to plug that as well. Thanks. Thanks. That's on SoundCloud and YouTube. Kamal Meets World. Different account. Well, uh, you you both did uh, you both did plugs. I'll do one as well. I will, in the, few, in the next few days, have a video uh, about having adventures in cities. I did make it already but i have to refilm it because just so much went wrong with it but it'll be cool i make hot chocolate over a fire in my garden and i, and I think you guys will like that that'll be up in a few days um right oh. well we normally do fun facts sam we forgot to to remind you of this and ask you to prepare one so i don't know if you have, have a, a, fun I have a fact. palate cleanser is that what that's that is? exactly what yeah. i mean please yeah. would you like to go first and cleanse um, our palates sam yeah so <laughs> So as you know, I'm from America and I had never seen the phrase black currant before I came over to England. Mm. And, you know, you go in the grocery store and you see black currant flavored this, black currant flavored that. Um, and I had no idea what this was. And I thought it was maybe some weird blueberry or something like that. Turns out it's a whole different fruit and the English love it. Um, and I was wondering why haven't I heard of black currant and why have most Americans and Canadians never heard of black currant? It's because it's mostly illegal in North America. Oh. And the black currant carries a fungus that kills the North American pine tree. So it was never, once that was discovered, it, it was banned hmm. and it's, it was not imported to North America. And thus we have grape flavored things that don't taste anything like grape. <laughs> and you guys don't. Interesting. Yeah, that's I, a great fact. That's a brilliant fact. I, I knew that Americans had grape flavor and we didn't, never knew why. Didn't know you didn't have black currant. That's I'm that is a well class fact, Sam. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Thank, Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Mm.
Okay, Adam, I think I should go next because I'm good. Okay. Mine is going to need a palate cleanser. Um, okay, great. And I apologize in advance for what I'm going to say. So I was doing trees. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of doing that metaphorically this week. Um, okay. But basically, sort of speaking of gamification and learning, actually, so I recently, and I brought him up earlier, I recently read Salman Rushdie's The Enchantress of Florence, which is amazing. Um, and it's sort of predicated on the fact that during sort of the, the 16th century, um, both Europe and and you know the, the whole Mediterranean basin stretching to the Middle East and also India and the Mughal court, the Mughal court were also going through all this kind of like revolution of culture and technology and the discovery of the new world is happening and all of these things. And so it was this very volatile period at the end of the European Middle Ages and um, that really sort of triggered you know maybe modern history in some senses. And and he speaks a lot about um, the voyages or a lot has been written about the voyages from. Uh, you know, west to east, um, but very little about travelers going the other way. And so he basically mm -hmm. wrote a story about, um, uh, you know, uh, essentially lovers from from different parts of the world and, and a journey that was made in reverse to what had commonly um, been associated at the time. And uh, there's a lot of true facts in the book, but because it's a historicalized fiction, you, it's hard to tell what's true and what's not. So after I read it, I went out um, to figure out what's true and what's not. And one of the craziest things, which is true, um, is because he's talking about a lot of the wars and um, things that happened during that time. Well, uh, in, in I think, 14, 1461, yeah, um, it turns out the Ottoman Empire, the, the Ottoman Sultan, Mehmed II, um, ended up fighting um, Vlad the Impaler of Wallachia, which is, um, you know, the the source and the inspiration for Dracula, who, you know, was was not actually a vampire. Now, bear with me. We're getting to trees. I'm nearly at the end of this fact. I think um, it's also Wallachia, but I'm not. Well, yeah, Wallachia, maybe. Um, Wallachia, whatever. Um, and uh, and and the reason what 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 happened basically he uh, is that Mehmed II, the Ottoman um, Sultan. Uh, requested annual tributes from the neighboring warlords, essentially around his empire, and um, and Mehmed II sent two envoys to Wallachia um, to collect his taxes um, in the winter of 1461, and uh, Vlad had them both killed and impaled. And then, for good measure, he crossed the Danube, Danube River, if that's how that's pronounced, into Ottoman Danube. territory and destroyed all the villages and defensive works he found there. Right. Hmm. Um, and so uh, this obviously incensed the the Sultan, and he went after. Um, Vlad, and uh, with with an army of ninety thousand soldiers, and Vlad recruited like conscripted basically like thirty thousand Wallachian peasants um, uh, to to stand trial. And as the Ottoman army advanced towards the capital, basically Vlad torched everything um, uh, on the way, right? Um, it, which made it a very weary pursuit. And eventually, they chased him all the way to um, uh, Targoviste, which is like the seat of his empire, or whatever. And um, when they eventually approached Targoviste, what they found, right, it was an eerily quiet scene, but it turns out that what they were greeted by um, at the open gates was a forest, a forest of 20,000 impaled corpses, right, oh, that, were, that were set up by Vlad the Impaler, the actual real Dracula, to greet them. And... Um, they basically, the army basically shat itself and ran away. And that's a true story. That's a real thing. I don't know why I didn't know about this before, but um, it's a very, very sinister, very gruesome, but also incredible story for the guy who probably more than anyone else deserved 
deserved to become Dracula in uh, popular yeah. fiction. Yeah. Uh, this is a bit of a throwback to the early days of the palate cleansers when they made me just sort of horrified at the world. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's awful. And I resent you for bringing it on this podcast. Yeah. yeah. But not a very interesting nonetheless. He was clearly a showman because um, there is speculation as to how he could possibly have found that many bodies. So um, it turns out he was probably collecting them for a while oh. for this particular display. So, oh dear. yeah, a truly, truly brutal leader from history. But, um, you know. Well, um, thanks. Palette for... cleansed. Oh, palette cleansed, <laughs> indeed. I also have a palette cleanser. Uh, mine's a bit shorter, which is that until 1858, British passports were written in French. Why is um, that? Well, it's because uh, so passports uh, then did not weren't didn't really serve the same function as they did now they were more like um documents requesting safe passage issued directly sort of by the government um and at the time french uh was the lingua franca it was the international language of diplomacy and um high finance um and so starting in the 1770s british safe passage documents were written in french um and including when the time when britain was at war with napoleon they weren't written in french that is very nice Another cool fact. Three for three, boys. That actually, three for this has been a good week for facts. Um, maybe it's because we're so dedicated to learning this week and <laughs> every week with an unqualified and, guide to the good life. Um, Sam, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. It's been a long time coming, um, but we love working with you and you always have such interesting things to say. So, so th thank you for contributing that today. Nick, keep it up. <laughs> it's been an honor and um yeah sam thank you thank you so much you're um you're you're my favorite person in this conversation <laughs> mine too mine too <laughs> <laughs> no thank you adam thank you both um and um yeah not the first time we've worked together um although the first time we've done this together but um there we're definitely gonna do a lot more so um i'm looking forward to that and thank you to you dear listener for indulging us and yes. <laughs> with love and rage we'll see you next time bye-bye goodbye